0: This is NPR's Life Kit. A lot of people are talking about the big topics of race and racism, police and power after the police killing of George Floyd and the protests that have come after. You might be having conversations right now with your family or workplace or friend group, asking variations of, what can I do? Or even, how am I complicit? Which is a conversation worth having. But it's also one that if you do it right will include either calling out how someone may have said or done something kind of messed up or being called out on having done or said something messed up, unintentionally even. You've probably heard the term for these types of transgressions. They're called microaggressions.
1: Because they can occur at any given time. They can occur uh, in workplace settings. They can occur in conversations within families. They can occur uh, just walking down the street. Um, And so we have these huge systemic issues that are happening. And then we also have these everyday sorts of uh,
0: interactions uh, that are a result of those systemic issues. Kevin Nadal is a professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. He's done research and written books on the effects of microaggressions and how people can cope with them. Everything going on right now with the protests and police violence on top of the pandemic might seem big. But I ask Nadal why it might be important to think
1: small. We navigate all of these things in our lives, uh, for many of us, on a daily, hourly basis. um, And for some of us, uh, where we might not even recognize that we are navigating them or even perpetrating them. And that's why it's important for us to have these conversations.
0: I'm Andrew Limbong, and this episode of LifeKid is all about identifying microaggressions and how or when to confront them, helpful even if you don't face them yourself. Because, well, if you are actually trying to learn something from this moment, these small daily interactions are as good a place as any to start. When the term microaggressions first came, like, en vogue, you know, a handful of years ago, I think people sort of, like, misunderstand what it is. So what's a microaggression versus, say, like, a macroaggression?
1: Sure. So microaggression is defined as the everyday uh, subtle intentional and oftentimes unintentional interactions uh, or behaviors that communicate some sort of bias towards historically marginalized groups. The difference between microaggressions and, let's say, overt discrimination or uh, macroaggressions is that people who commit microaggressions might not even be aware of them. When we think about overt discrimination, hostile discrimination, violence, things like that, uh, these are people that are intentionally trying to hurt or harm people of various groups because of their identity groups. When people commit microaggressions, um, it's sometimes that they didn't even realize that they did anything at all. So, you know, some some examples of microaggressions include um, what we would label as microinsult. Um, somebody who presumes uh, that an Asian American wouldn't speak English, um, that would be considered an insult. Um, and so uh, somebody who says to a person, wow, you speak really good English, and the Asian American person says, thanks, I was born and raised here, I wouldn't... Know what else I would be speaking, um, that that would be an insult um, that conveys that they presume the Asian-American would have been a perpetual foreigner or they wouldn't have been American enough or or born and raised in this country. Another example of a micro-insult might be something like presuming that a black person or a person of color would be dangerous or violent um, in some way. So a very common experience that uh, people Mm -hmm. of color and black people, black men particularly, Mm -hmm. talk about is being followed around in stores Mm -hmm or getting on an elevator and people moving to the right or left and grabbing their purses
0: or their wallet. To be clear, the micro in microaggression doesn't mean that the acts can't have big, life-altering impacts. Far from it, actually. There's a mental health toll to these constant, repetitive stressors. And on the more extreme side of it, the presumption of violence can lead to the cops being called, which often doesn't end well.
1: Oftentimes, people don't even realize that they're doing those sorts of things. And in fact, if you were to stop them and say, why did you just move? They would deny it because they don't recognize that their their behaviors communicate their, their racial biases.
0: What is the value in the binary and then like putting them into two different camps? You know what I mean? Like, w- if if someone says something racist to me right mm-hmm. um what does their intent like, what can I do with knowing about whether or not they intended it? You know, at the end of the day, if somebody says
1: something racist to you, it's racist, and sure. if, if it <laughs> yeah, hurts true. your feelings, it hurts your feelings, and if it makes you feel like crap, it makes you feel like crap. So it doesn't really matter, you know, what what we would define it as. Um, but it is important to understand because a lot of times people who uh, engage in microaggressions will will not believe that what they said uh, was racist or or mm. sexist or homophobic, um, and so calling them racist or sexist or homophobic uh, would be something that would make them very defensive and make them unable to even recognize uh, what their impact was. Um, not that microaggressions is, is too much uh, better in terms of their defensiveness, um, but in my experience, what I found is by people who are aware that microaggressions exist, are able to have this sort of language, uh, we recognize that uh, we all are human beings who are prone to mistakes. and. We're we're all human beings who might commit microaggressions. And it's not necessarily that you're a bad person if you commit a microaggression, but rather that you're a human who needs to be more aware of their biases and their impact on people, um, and that we all need to be committed to uh, you know, working on these things in order to, to be a more harmonious
0: society. But that does get into weird territory, right? Like, now we're having a discussion about Black people and police brutality, and neither of us are Black.
1: It is weird, but it's also like, you know, you don't have to be of a certain group to understand that something is, is unjust. You know, you don't have to be a woman to understand that sexism is real. You don't have mm. to be, uh, you know, a queer person to understand that homophobia is still real. It's really just learning how to be empathetic to people, and also just to be really aware and knowledgeable of history. This country is founded on racism towards indigenous people and racism towards black people. Um, and that's not new. And so, even if we might not necessarily understand exactly what it means to be the member of the targeted group at that moment, we certainly can relate to some of those experiences and can certainly rely on our knowledge and uh, our awareness of, of history and of the. The lived experiences of people of those groups
0: okay so let's say you get into a conversation about current events right and the the conversation turns towards like police and you know racism and you know police brutality and all that and like maybe a microaggression hasn't come up yet but you can you can like smell mm-hmm. it in the air like a spring <laughs> right you yep. like okay yep. you know i, I, I can see that we're treading into some certain dangerous territory here um Like, what are your options there?
1: I think uh, there are a lot of things that people need to consider when, when having what we would call difficult dialogues with people. And, and it could be either whether or not the person is worth talking to. Is this somebody that you care about? Is this somebody who you think um, would actually have the capacity to hear what you have to say? Uh, mm-hmm. Is this somebody who, mm, who you're even close to, uh, who you would even care would, would have some personal growth or not? A lot of times people uh, get into a lot of arguments with people that maybe they don't need to necessarily be emotionally invested in because they don't have that sort of relationship. And so, so these are types of decisions that people need to make. And if you are close, and if you do have a relationship that you might be worried about in terms of having these difficult dialogues, maybe say something like, you know, maybe we need to take a break and um, I'm going to give you something that I hope you could read. Um, and maybe that would be something that could be helpful or effective, um, even more than, and then a conversation that might just turn into yelling and hostility and inability to actually communicate with each other.
0: Mm. Is there a risk of that looking like homework?
1: Yes. Uh, so, with all of these conversations comes the risk of homework um, comes the risk of people having to do extra work. Oftentimes people of color are asked to speak about issues related to racism and to then educate white people on issues uh, that the person of color has lived with and thought about for their entire lives. As a result of that, that can be very psychologically and emotionally exhausting for a person to then have to uh, to care about the white person's feelings um, and to to take those extra efforts so that they can learn something that you know they should have and could have learned throughout the duration of their life. And it's not just about race; it's oftentimes something that happens with women and LGBTQ folks and people with disabilities and immigrants and people of size and people of various marginalized identities. Um, having to educate the person with power and privilege. And so with that, um, I say that, you know, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. Um, At the same time, if you're a person um, with those privileged identities and you want to be a true ally, maybe you do have to do that homework. Maybe you do have to to engage in those uncomfortable emotions um, because you know that it's your your job, your responsibility uh, to have those conversations so that other people of color or women or LGBTQ folks won't have to
0: have that conversation for you, mm, yeah, you're you're in a difficult dialogue with somebody um, that you like and have have invested in right or, or have uh-huh. made the the decision that like this person is worth talking to, uh-huh. um, and then they say something messed up that would fall you know maybe even toes a line between the microaggression macroaggression then right uh-huh. um, How do you call them out without them getting defensive? Sure.
1: I think one of the things that's important with uh, difficult dialogues uh, is to, one, to, to go into all difficult dialogues, having a strong sense of who you are, what's important to you, what your values are, uh, what is worth it, what's not worth it. And so it's sort of like this, you know, promotion and, and prevention and this understanding that, like, with anyone that I'm going to be in a relationship with, what what is going to be where I draw the line in terms of how I stand up for myself and uh, how I respond to certain things. Um, and so I think going into those sorts of relationships is something that actually a lot of people of color and people of other historically marginalized groups actually grapple with all the time. Like when uh, I can speak for myself as a queer person of color, um, I know that when I meet white people or when I meet straight people, I'm not naive. To think that at any given moment that something racist or or, or homophobic, either overtly or or uh, subtly, might occur, and so you know we're prepared for that and to some degree, but but there's also this sense of like how will you react if that happens? And I think for for many people, especially in, during you know this time, people have to be really uh, intentional on on how they want to react to certain things. I, I know lots of people who are in my circles are immediate, like no, you're if if you uh, oppress me in any way, like I will not build with you and I you know, don't want to uh, continue my, my friendship or relationship with you. And then I have other people who might be very willing to have conversations with people. And I think all of those reactions are very valid because uh, no one owes anyone anything. So a person of color, a person of historically marginalized group doesn't have to educate someone if they don't want to because they've had a lot of uh, trauma and there is a lot of psychological distress that comes, um, from these sorts of conversations. So, so going back to your original question, um, just this, how, how do you navigate these sorts of things? Um, I, I think it's important, um, to even just identify, uh, how you're feeling in that moment. I think a lot of times people like to argue with facts or what they perceive as facts um, and what they perceive as logic. Um, But when you bring in your own experience um, and say like, look, you know, what you're saying is really hurtful to me as a person of color. What you're saying is really hurtful to me as a queer person of color. Um, And for the benefit of our relationship, I want to take a step back from you right now um, or I need you to take a step back right now because you're hurting my feelings and again this is something that you might say to somebody you're close to if you're some stranger on the street starts saying something like that to you you might not have any time for that and you shouldn't have any time for that
0: let's assume that we're we're like close friends and talking about um you know just like being brown in new york right as Mm -hmm. as i have experienced being right and then i say something um like low-key homophobic but we're friends and you know that i could be better like where do you where do where do you go? I guess I don't yeah, where do you go from there? Sure. I mean, you know, that's not just a role play, that's something that happens quite
1: often. So <laughs> what I might say immediately is say, what do you mean by that? So like somebody says, "Oh, that's so gay," or somebody says, "No homo," Mm -hmm. and then I say, "What do you mean
0: by that?" Or if I I say Uh, like pause or or do one of those things, right? Yeah,
1: right. And then when I say, "What do do you mean by that?" Um, That's my that's in my toolbox. That's something that I go to. And if we're friends, and I and if we're friends, that means that I trust that you do care about social justice issues, and maybe this is just a slip um, in that Uh moment um, that that person will say, "Oh shit, I'm sorry, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't mean that," because asking someone what they mean by that is giving them that opportunity to explain themselves. And for some people, they say things just because they've been so socialized to say certain things. But when they're really asked to explain what they're trying to say, that's where, you know, they have to think about it and sometimes even retract what they originally say because they don't want to perpetuate something that, that isn't actually who they are.
0: What do you mean? I'm going to keep that one in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Oh, yeah. what, what are some signs that it might be time to bail on a conversation you've committed and you think that this person has has, you know, an opportunity to grow. But like maybe maybe it's just like Wednesday and you're both hungry and tired. Right. Like, What, what are some signs that it's like, OK, let's let's put a pin in this.
1: I think for me, um, it goes back to that original question of, of being prepared for what you're going to get yourself into. And so if you know that you don't have the time to do something because you're in a rush to go to a meeting or you need to eat something or you have to pick up your kids from school, um, then maybe you know that this isn't exactly where you need to be right now. So setting your uh, priorities and expectations and having any of these conversations. Um, sometimes it might be, be helpful to put time limits on certain situations to say to somebody like, look, I only have 10 minutes. Minutes, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about what this is and to use those 10 minutes as wisely as possible so that people know they can't just you know go off onto tangents and and uh, you know steer clear of whatever the original issue was mm-hmm. but when you do have the time and you're in it one of the things for you or for anyone to think about is is this actually helping is this a conversation that I view as being helpful in any way shape or form it's important to acknowledge that no one is going to, learn everything in one conversation overnight. Um, But realistically, you might be able to see that this is a conversation in which a person is able to uh, be reflective, to receive and acknowledge anything that you're trying to say to them, that they are open to thinking about something, as opposed to them just waiting for you to stop talking so they can continue talking. Um, And one of the things that I I think about in these conversations is, is the word toxicity is this a toxic conversation if the conversation is toxic it might be best to step away as soon as possible and i think that's totally valid and necessary and as a psychologist i will say is probably very good boundaries there is no reason to keep on going back to people
0: that are going to hurt you So to recap, if you're about to have a hard conversation with someone that'll hit on microaggressions,
1: I think one of the most important things of de- in, in dealing with microaggressions and difficult dialogues um, is to do your own work, to to do your work before you even get there, to read, uh, to understand the lived experiences of people of historically marginalized groups, because that's one way that we can understand each other is to to try to think outside of our own perspectives. Um, I think the second thing that's important is to set realistic expectations of what you want from these conversations. Setting these goals are important because oftentimes people want there to be immediate change and that just isn't going to happen. Hardly ever will you have a conversation where someone will say, oh, I 100% agree with you, you're right, Um, let me change my ways, but you might be able uh, to, to offer them some insight. And I guess the, the last piece you know that, that I'm thinking about is is just to always be uh, aware of yourself and your, your mental health when having these conversations. If we are fighting all the time, which you know in our hearts we want to do, um, but we're unable to rest, um, then we're not going to last very long in this world. Um, and so this is why it's important for us to work together collectively, uh, so that some people are fighting while some people are resting, and other people are are will pick it up um, when those people who are fighting need to rest themselves. Um, and so always think about you know what's best for you. Um, if a conversation is going bad, it might be okay just to step away from that. Um, But again, think about your role and your positionality, because if you're a person with privilege and you could fight a little bit longer, um, then do it. Uh, But if you're a person of a historically marginalized group, you know, we want you to be alive and we want you to be healthy in order to continue uh, this fight towards justice.
0: For more NPR Life Kit, check out our other episodes. We have an episode about how to talk about race with young kids, another on how to spot misinformation in the news, and a lot more. You can find those at npr.org lifekit. And if you love Life Kit and want more, subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash lifekitnewsletter. Hi, my name is Rachel from Pennsylvania, and I am a preschool teacher who's currently home with her preschooler uh, during quarantine. My tip for parents is to try and keep a routine. Don't stress out if the routine's not the same one that you did the day before. Sometimes your kids need something different from one day to the next. The important thing is is to try and keep things regular for them. If you went on the walk outside on Monday, but on Tuesday it's raining, do a walk inside. Try anything you can to try and keep them as routine but as comfortable as possible, and it's okay to make mistakes. We also want to hear from you. What are you doing to cope right now? If you've got a good tip, leave us a voicemail with your name, number, and a greeting at 202-216-9823, or email us at lifekit at npr.org. This episode was produced by Andy Tegel. Megan Kane is the managing producer. Beth Donovan is the senior editor. Our digital editor is Beck Harlan, and our editorial assistant is Claire Schneider. I'm Andrew Limbong. Thanks for listening. This week
1: on It's Been a Minute, I talk out the news with my Aunt Betty. I'm more concerned about the black men that I love than anything in the world because I just don't want to get that call. Also, parenting in the age of Black Lives Matter and the history of police reform. Listen and subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR.